Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast. My name is John Reynolds, the host. Uh, later, we're talking to Matt Kelly, the newspaper executive about the consortium that has just bought the uh, new European newspaper. Uh, but first, up, we're going to talk about the role the advertising industry potentially has to play in the rollout of the vaccine. So we're joined by three advertising executives, Richard Huntington, the chairman of Saatchi & Saatchi London, Mel Arrow, head of strategy at B&B, and Neil Henderson, the CEO of St. Luke's. Now, thanks all for joining me. You're all very welcome. So the premise for this is something that uh, WPP's Karen Blackett said at the recent Advertising Association conference. Uh, so to quote uh, Karen verbatim, she said, we, the advertising industry, has a huge responsibility to play in ensuring that people get the vaccine and it's safe to get the vaccine. So I'll start with you, Richard. Is Karen right? Does the advertising industry have a huge responsibility responsibility to play? And if so, why? Uh, I, well, the advertising industry has a huge responsibility in any um, uh, large-scale um, conversation with the nation uh, uh, about uh, particular behaviours. I, I just have a sensitivity that... Of all the things uh, that have uh, happened in and around this crisis, the rollout of the vaccine is uh, an unmitigated success. We've got 12 million individual doses have been delivered. Nearly 18% of the population has had its first vaccination. And uh, I, I think this is one of those areas where perhaps uh, uh, we don't need to advertise uh, the vaccine. Uh, people are extremely keen to get in line and get it done. That said... I think she may be talking about uh, specific groups where vaccine hesitancy is a, a significant issue. And it may well be that we do have uh, a role to play with those groups. Yeah, OK, because it, it struck me as obviously I can understand the government has a huge responsibility, the NHS and perhaps the pharmaceutical industry. But I was unsure about the uh, ad industry. Can you talk about some of the work that your agency is is doing or intending to helping maybe combat some of this hesitancy uh, we we haven't got any live breeze at the moment to combat hesitancy um, uh, if uh, organizations wanted us to help uh, with that task i think be more than willing to do that i have to say i think that that though the the brands or the organizations that are most likely to gain traction are the single you know the nhs is the single most trusted brand in this sector i'm not sure of this issue i'm not sure that commercial brands necessarily uh, ha have a role to play and i think when it comes to specific communities uh, that expressing or exhibiting vaccine hesitancy i, I think that that's, that's a job for community groups, uh, mm. for faith groups. Uh, so I think the advertising industry uh, is ready, willing and able to help uh, in that task. But I don't think it'll be our commercial brands that are the appropriate voices uh, to deliver that message. OK, let's bring uh, Mel in now. What's your take on this? I guess we all know that a well-executed creative campaign can change minds. Do you think there's any onus for an agency like you to kind of do some pro bono viral work in this area or anything like that? Or potentially viral yeah. work? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, to be honest, I'm, I'm with Richard on this. I think, um, I think there is definitely kind of misinformation out there. Uh, the World Health Organization called it an infodemic. Um, but I think you can only play the cards that you are given. So if, 
if we were given a brief by a media platform, for instance, Facebook or Instagram, who have a massive kind of um, responsibility to make sure that the information on their platform is correct and they are stamping out misinformation, then I think, you know, the onus would be on us to collaborate with that platform to make sure that they are hitting that issue in the right way. But I, I do kind of worry, actually, about advertising wading in wholeheartedly mm. on this issue and being another voice and kind of uh, actually sort of drowning out voices like the government, like the NHS that needs to kind of be heard. Um, I also think that it's not necessarily the role of, as Richard said, the role of commercial brands to play a part in this. I think it's interesting the brands that have come forward and said that they want to want to help. And that's, I think, because they have resources at their disposal that could be used. But I think my advice to brands in this situation would be to approach this in plain clothing and not have branding and logos and brand personalities and tone of voices getting in the way of what is a really important mission. So I guess, I mean, advertising can absolutely play a role in getting the right message to the right people in the right way. But I don't know if uh, without the kind of correct brief being given to us for the right brand that has a role to play in it. I don't know whether advertising should be just another voice uh, distracting people in this situation. Okay. And aside from your day job, I've, I've read stories about the likes of of John Lewis and other private business, businesses offering the use of their premises to administer the job. I guess it may be a bit of a stretch converting your offices into a jab centre, uh, into a jab centre, um, but is there other areas you think ad agencies could help out with perhaps volunteering and things like that? They may have to staff morale within the agency. Mel? Um, I think that this is, a, I mean, the whole thing is a, a massive human issue and a massive human challenge. And maybe for the first time in history, the whole world is on one mission, which is to get to the other side of this pandemic. So I think as human beings, if there were things that we could do uh, to help, I think that should be and could be encouraged. Um, I think, you know, as I said, with kind of brands approaching this in plain clothing, I think this shouldn't ever be for good PR. It shouldn't ever be kind of capitalizing on this situation for agency PR or brand PR. It's got to be motivated by a, a desire to help with resources that can actually be helpful. So, yes, suddenly if there is a call um, for office space to be turned into jab centers, then I think we would probably put our hands up and say, yeah, absolutely. You might struggle with refrigeration, but you'll feel, feel free to use the square footage. But, um, but I think it's got to be at this kind of human desire to help level rather than any kind of uh, capitalising on the situation. Okay, let's bring in Neil. So your agency came out with the well-regarded uh, Stay Home Now activity, the inverted NHS logo. Can you give us a bit of background on that? And, I mean, were you keen to do something which had a, a wider public health benefit? Because, I mean, you did that, that was pro bono work. Yes, that's right. Yes, we did the, the Stay Home Now campaign. That actually happened before uh, the first lockdown. I think it was, at, it was at that stage where everyone was looking at TV pictures of what was happening in France and Italy and really beginning to freak out. And most people had started to work at home. I listened to a, 
uh, an, a radio interview, a guy called Dr. Jack, who was phoning in and saying just what a nightmare it was in his hospital. And he was pleading with people to stay at home. I sent this around the agency and said, look, I think you've got to take this really seriously. and Don't go out this weekend. And my creative director came back within an hour saying, uh, you know, look, NHS logo backwards says stay home now. Um, and, and we decided, well, 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 let's put it out there because it seemed like a really important message before the government had locked down. Um, so we just put it out on, on our personal channels on social media just to see if it gained any traction because obviously we, we decided not to go to the NHS or the government because uh, th- there'd be no time to, to get it approved or anything and we weren't the agency you know in charge of it so we just put it out on social media and and we saw people from the NHS saying this is really clever I, I really like this and before we know it it started it started picking up and, and then it just grew and grew and grew and um, celebrities started tweeting it uh, and then we got big poster companies like Global and Clear Channel stepping in and giving us hundreds of poster sites um, and so, yeah, it, it really, it really took off. I think it was just one of those campaigns that I think people were desperate to share the message themselves, um, and and this was the the, the way to do it. Um, so, yeah, it was very, very focused, and we, and we made absolutely sure that we were totally aligned with what the government was saying. We didn't try and go off message, and that that was kind of one of the things that was most important. But I think complementing the official communication of the government with something that was coming from the community uh, was was really powerful. And did this help with staff morale? I mean, this kind of idea of they were, you know, doing a wider public public good too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people were incredibly proud of, of doing it. Everyone threw themselves into it. Um, and, and obviously we had, you know, we had editors and, uh, uh, you know, people, the, the, obviously the media industry. And then we got hundreds of tens of A-listers all putting in contributions to, to a film we made. It was, uh, so I think everyone just wanted to help and wanted to do something useful. Um, and, and I think that's true of the, the vaccine rollout as well. But, but as the guys have said, it seems to be going very well at the moment. But, but I think it's early days. And whilst it's going well, brands don't feel the need to step in. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the people who've got some logistical help uh, can and are doing it. But it's you, you don't want to get the message wrong. But I think we'll see as as time goes on and confidence in vaccine grows. I think, you know, once we see this thing actually working, because what you don't want to do is, is get your name behind something that, that might not work. There's a lot of complexity in it. Um, but we'll see what the message is. I mean, ultimately, this thing is only going to work if everyone does it, or if, you know, and the whole world. Um, and so there might be a role for, for for brands like the Nikes and so on to step in and, and start saying, particularly amongst the younger groups as well, because this is what we haven't got to yet in the UK. Uh, the older people, you know, they're, they're taking it because they understand the real threat to their lives. But but the younger groups could be much more ambivalent, and and then I think brands might might step in and, and provide some inspiration. Okay, so I mean, I noticed the it was the Super Bowl last night, and, and Budweiser, uh, who are a frequent advertiser during Super Bowl, opted not to advertise and instead created a, a short film pledging support for vaccine awareness and donated to the uh, their advertising dollars to the Ad Council to raise awareness. But the consensus from you guys is uh, brands in the UK, partly because the the vaccine rollout is going so well, are unlikely to do something similar. Richard. Yeah, I think where, where I'm at at the moment is uh, this is this is going well at the moment. Uh, the right brand, the right voice is the NHS. I do think that that we should take 
Karen's call to arms seriously when it comes to specific groups where there is hesitancy. But I mean, Budweiser, ultimately what they did is donated their cash. Actually, that is the way brands can help this particular drive. I have to say that the the vaccine rollout is one part of, of the complex uh, world we're living in. And the truth is that brands' real obligation is uh, both to get our economy uh, going again uh, and to look after their businesses and their people and also to use their resources to deal with the fallout around this crisis. So, you know, we've been doing work with brands like uh, EE, uh, making sure that uh, that kids that haven't got access to the internet to uh, uh, undertake remote learning get zero rated data. That is where brands can really be uh, playing a part, not not um, not muscling in on 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 the NHS's role, which is deliver the vaccine rollout. And how how uh, aware are your your clients of this idea? I mean, there is a perception, isn't it, that those companies or brands that do something out of the ordinary for the public good during the pandemic, uh, it will benefit them long-term with, with customers. I mean, those companies, for instance, which have given back uh, furlough uh, money, for instance, have got positive media coverage, uh, while others who arguably have seemed to have acted dastardly uh, during, the camp- uh, during the pandemic have, have got bad media coverage. I mean, how aware of your clients of that, Richard? I think all um, all clients and brands that are serious uh, about their relationship with with the UK and, and their customers are super super aware of this. They know there's so much evidence that uh, that uh, that the consumers are watching. Um, uh, and we've got. A, a, considerable amount of evidence from things like the tech tips um, campaign we ran with BT at the beginning of the first lockdown delivering basic tech uh, skills for people who uh, as of March last year had to depend uh, on a technology uh, to, to participate in the life that we were all living online like that that, that stuff is uh, that, that that activity I think has done brands an enormous amount of good because people have been watching um, uh, and uh, as the crisis evolves and moves from a healthcare crisis to an economic crisis and a crisis of inequality, uh, brands need to be alive to where the help is needed. But I, I've got a sense, I mean, maybe others, uh, you know, everybody else disagrees with me, but I've got a sense uh, that um, that that sort of what, what I'd call duty rather than purpose, the, the, the duty to serve has been uh, very clearly stamped on the the, the minds of uh, larger brands and organisations that that um, that this is important. If you want to play a part in our national life, you need to step up. Uh, Mel, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I think that has been in a sort of advertising sense potentially audiences growing a little bit tired maybe of kind of glib messages of of being in it together with people uh there is a bit of sort of tiredness around that but i think on the whole um i think the brands that have stepped up and used their resources um to better help people in this situation have will benefit and have benefited um and have shown themselves to be kind of leaders in society we work with um we work with LinkedIn and I think 
the, the what we what we did with LinkedIn at the start of the pandemic was kind of take a step back and look at the resources that LinkedIn has at its disposal. And the biggest resource LinkedIn has is millions and millions of skilled members, some of whom were very suddenly out of work. So we switched the world's biggest employment community into a volunteering platform and connected people to volunteering positions that needed filling. Uh, so I think the brands that have come out of this best are the ones that have recognized the resources at their disposal and deployed them in, in the best way possible. And not just the brands that have um, maybe kind of used a piano track on their ads and, and talked about being in it together. I think there needs to be some substance to what brands are doing. And mostly it has, has been kind of substance as well. And Neil, have your, have your clients stepped up too? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I totally agree with the guys. You know, if you, you've got to bring substance to it, we work with the Daily Mail and they collected millions of pounds from their readers and, and corporations to buy uh, PPE when that was a real crisis. Um, and they didn't just, you know, point at the, the issue. They they actually went and bought it and supplied it. Um, and, and they're doing the same thing now, bringing computers to kids. And, and they get huge appreciation for that. Ocado we work with, and they, they made sure that that they prioritized um, the vulnerable uh, and the shielding. And, and when we talked to their customers about that, they, they again, they really appreciated uh, what Ocado were doing on that front. Um, I particularly liked uh, you know, Burger King are, are, are always fun, aren't they? That, but they, they recently um, were advertising other small restaurants. Um, so they're saying, don't have a Whopper, you know, have, have you, you know, kebabs kebabs mm-hmm. or whatever uh, which i thought was 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 really r- really nice uh, from them um I think it gets interesting when you start getting close to people's actual businesses. Of course, Ryanair did Jab and Go, which <laughs> which mm-hmm. was just a you know appalling. Um, but of course, Ryanair are really trying to sell a service now here, aren't they? So that so there's there's the moment when it really starts touching on business itself. Of course, Budweiser want this rollout to go really well because they want people back in pubs. And I think, you know, in America, you've got a big anti-vaxxer movement. So, it's really in Budweiser's interest to uh, to, to get this vaccine rollout to, to really, really work over there. Um, so, I think that's, that's when it's going to start getting really interesting when brands do need this to work and work as quickly as possible so they can they can get their businesses back on track. I mean, you mentioned, you, you mentioned the Ryanair um out there and you said it was appalling will other brands look at that and think um you know i won't go near the uh, the vaccination because it's just a minefield you're touching on so many sensitive sensitivities i guess yeah absolutely you, you've got to be really sensitive about it haven't you jab i mean ryanair always use a pretty punchy kind of language they're probably having a laugh at a bit about it i don't know but um uh yeah i think you've, you've you've got to deal with it really really sensitively it's interesting that saga have have come out and said that all their customers need to be inoculated. Um, and, and that's when it gets really real, isn't it? You, you know, you can't go on the cruise unless you've had, um, unless you've had a jab. Um, and then you're getting into the, okay, so this is a voluntary thing. Well, Saga aren't insisting that you go and get it, but they are if you come on their, on their ship. And I think that's, that's when it's going to start, you know, the, the, the rubber's really going to hit the road. Okay. I noticed, just it'd be great to get your take. There was a, a tweet from uh, Chuka Amunu, uh, the, the ex-Labour um, politician this morning, who was talking about the issue for companies uh, as you know, amid the vaccine rollout. And can you require employees to get vaccinated for the sake of other employees and customers? I guess, again, this is a, a tricky situation, Richard. Is this something you've 
um, you're having discussions about, or is it t- totally down to the uh, the individual within the agency? I guess not something we're having discussions about at the moment. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, you know. As the rollout gets closer into um, the working population, we'll see how uh, how the take up goes. Um, you know, we don't demand that people have a flu vaccine, although we do encourage it. And I think that probably in the medium term, we're looking at a situation that's not dissimilar to flu, where we have to have annual booster uh, vaccinations in order to keep up with the evolving and mutating virus. Um, whether we get to a sort of world in which uh, a vaccine passport influences your life choices, I think that would be a, an, an understandable but unfortunate fortunate place for us to get to as a society. Um, okay. It would be great to get just more broadly all uh, three of you. I mean, the, the government communications during the pandemic, pandemic has obviously been a, a Herculean task. I mean, how do you think, I mean, generally, how do you think this third? I mean, have you been impressed with the, the speed of which the, uh, the communications has been rolled out? Obviously, there's been a few uh, hiccups, hasn't there, uh, Mel? Um, yeah, I think in amongst the kind of um, dramatic changes in policy <laughs> uh, that I, I assume the advertising company, um, advertising agency working with the government has had to sort of deal with, there's been really memorable kind of triptychs of words, you know, hands, face, space, things that people can remember, say to themselves, that can, they can educate themselves about the behavior that they need to um, undertake. So I think the kind of memorability of um, an, an educational side of, of the work uh, has been good. Personally, and this is a, this is a personal preference, I uh, think that the ads that were much more kind of stark and almost kind of like something from a kind of sci-fi movie where it's clearly the government talking to you actually shocked me into kind of paying attention more than the latter kind of slightly more emotive uh, looking into people's eyes kind of uh, approach. I think that's I think that's because. I wanted it to be a message from the government who and a feeling that they were leading this rather than all of the onus being on the people sitting at home who are doing their best. Uh, okay. What's your take, Neil, generally on the government communications? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the complexity of putting this kind of messaging out at the speed they've had to uh, just makes it very difficult. And you've got to sort of take the hats off for the speed. that they've, And also there's a gap between agreeing a concept and doing the production and getting it out there. And in that time, things, everything changes, doesn't it? So it's it's a really difficult task. I think the, the one thing I've missed is a is some sort of visualization of covid you know it's a it's a killer you cannot see and what advertising can do is show you something that that is unseen so if we look at you know back, if we think back hiv you know we can all remember if you were if you if you're old enough you remember that that kind of tombstone image with aids written on it uh the 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 the, the um, Heart Foundation, British Heart Foundation, with the fat coming out of the cigarette. These kind of very strong visual evocations of something that you can't see is what health advertising can do brilliantly. And I think I think we've sort of missed we've missed that. Uh, Richard, would you agree with that? The, the visualization aspect? Yeah, t- totally. And 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 I think it speaks to something 
it's a bit of a bigger issue. You know, this this country uh, was well famous for its uh, the way the government engaged its the state engaged with citizens through communications and through the COI and the now disbanded Central Office of Information. When the coalition government, uh, in an act of uh, social vandalism, I think, got rid of the COI, uh, it it, it, um, it it dispersed that expertise, and we're now, I think. I'm mean, going to be harsher. I think we're laughing stock when it comes to uh, the the communication between state and and citizen right now, uh, because while the vaccine rollout is uh, extremely competent, virtually no other part of this crisis has been held, held um, has been uh, delivered in a competent manner, including communications. Uh, it was you know the initial communications were too late, um, and the messages have been appallingly mixed and lacking any form of strategy. Uh, I do actually feel that maybe the more recent stuff uh, has, like, look into my eyes, has uh, has at least a sense of the the messaging is becoming a little bit more coherent. We're back to stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, which I think is the only uh, sort of triumvirate that, that anybody's remembered. So, so I'm not, uh, I, you know, let's not shoot the messenger and the ad agency involved. But I think that when the public the series of public inquiries into exactly how this crisis was mishandled uh, by our government, uh, communications will have to be part of that agenda. You're not working with the Labour Party at all, are you? <laughs> Uh, well, my views are quite well known, but but, uh, but I mean, come on, we've got to accept that that, that this is uh, you know we've had an appalling uh, healthcare crisis in this country. Just and I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, Neil and Mel, do you uh, kind of concur with that? That we are seen as a, a, a laughing stock. I don't. I, I don't know about laughing stock, but I, I mean, I look back at the communication. I, I don't think there's anything particularly memorable. Um, it's just been kind of trying to react to the current the, the situation as, as it stands. And I think someone, well, as I say, you know, a visualization of the COVID thing would have been a, a bigger a, and someone really understanding what communication can add to this and play as, as this whole thing plays out. I don't think uh, enough attention was paid to that. Yeah. I think it, I definitely think that, um, sorry to interrupt, I think the advertising definitely reads as reactive, uh, reacting to changing policy, desperately coming up with a new triptych to uh, allow people to remember the latest thing that they should remember. It hasn't been consistent. It's definitely been meandering and reactive to government policy. That's, That's what it reads as to me, for sure. I was going to add, I think on the vaccine thing, I've not seen anything about vaccines. There's nothing explaining what a vaccine does, for example. You know, where's the education? Where's the simple thing that explains in easy language or an easy graphic or something that says a vaccine works like this and reminds us that we got rid of polio and smallpox. It's a tremendously, you know, for, and it's great. Yes, sure, 80% of people are doing it, but there's a, there's a lot of people that, uh, as I think Mel said earlier, there's a lot of misinformation and the government could be addressing that now. Now, uh, and, with good information. And, and Neil, I, 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 I really want to back that up. I mean, I think that had we had an ongoing campaign around vaccination, which has been problematic in, in, in lots of ways, and we've had vac- vaccination hesitancy 
uh, on a number of issues uh, in the recent past. Y- you know, we might have entered into this crisis with a population more uh, um, more accepting, and, and uh, there's got to be a long-term role for government communications uh, or communications from the NHS to educate and popularise uh, the, the power of vaccines because we're going to be so dependent on vaccination for the foreseeable future. Yes, um, I mean, sorry. Go on, go on, Neil, go on. Well, there's messaging around because it's about looking after yourself. But I think the, 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 the more important one is going to be you've got to have it in order to look after the community. And that isn't just going to be Britain. We, you know, we've got to think about that. It, it's a global thing that's got to be got right as well. And, and that people need to be educated about that. So um, and the sooner we would with that message is going out there in a coherent way, the better. Um, okay, hopefully someone from the government uh, communications department is listening. Uh, that's really good, really opinionated. Uh, it's short and sweet. We do need to stop there. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Neil, uh, Richard, and um, Matt. Uh, so thanks for joining me, uh, Matt. You're very welcome. So the uh, New European newspaper, which launched around four and a half years ago as a pop-up weekly newspaper to chronicle the aftermath of Brexit, has now established established itself and has now been sold by local newspaper group Archant to a group of high-profile in, high profile investors. Can you give us a bit of background to the deal, how it came about? Sure. Uh, well, Archant um, was the company I was working for as uh, chief content officer when uh, I launched the New European with them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's actually it's hard to think of, a, of another company in the UK that would have done that so quickly and with such agility. But the truth is that uh, local newspapers and regional newspapers and magazines is Archon's business, not national political periodicals. So uh, when Archon was acquired in December by private equity company R Capital, I thought uh, here's an opportunity to talk to them about taking the new European out of Archon's, leaving Archon with a uh, a few quid um, uh, as a as a kind of farewell <laughs> bonus. Um, and uh, and seeing if I could put together a consortium of people who, like me, believed that the new European um, not only was sustainable but had a big future ahead of it if it could um, if it could occupy a kind of centrist space between perhaps the new statesman and the spectator, a space that I think has opened up and is more relevant today than even than it was just after the referendum. Okay, so you mentioned a consortium there, and they are. Um, many of them are high-profile individuals in the media world. So you've got the former FT editor Lionel Barber, former BBC Director General Mark Thompson. You've got Gavin O'Reilly, who I think was the chief exec of the parent company of The Independent. Yeah. And then you've got people like, uh, forgive me if I pronounce his name wrong, Taviat Hinrichus, who's the, the founder of uh, Transfer Work, Transfer yeah. Work, which is a big uh, transfer company. So, I mean, how do you, how does that come about? I mean, do you know, presumably you know these people. How do, do, do well, you proactively go after them or...? I know a few of them, and uh, and they know uh, the rest of them. So, um, yeah, it was a surprisingly easy fundraise, to be honest. People um, got the idea, and I don't think any of those people that you've named uh, see the new European as as a way to get rich in the in the next few years. But they certainly thought it was a good commercial um, idea, uh, and more importantly, they wanted to support our our political mission um you know they're all big believers in plurality and um you know you got tavat Henriquez, who is as you said the 
the uh, founder of Transferwise. He's an Estonian. He's like a world citizen, liberal, progressive. You know, he wants to see this kind of journalism uh, uh, alive and well. And I think there's a lot of concern everywhere about the rise of, or not necessarily the rise, but the, the sort of increasing polarity of of journalism you know uh and uh, you know you got uh, mark thompson as he said and lionel and ed williams who's the boss of um edelman who are a very big communications company um and a couple of venture capitalists involved so we've got a great broad spectrum of investors from you know people who are very used to investing in tech startups to tech uh very uh, wealthy tech uh founders and entrepreneurs and and very seasoned and experienced and successful journalists so you mentioned there uh, that they're not going to make um millions out of this venture these investors well, I, I didn't but say that. I'm, I'm hoping they will john but um but it, it's not a shoo-in I guess when I first read this story, my first thought was these individuals might be wanting to use the paper to use it as a conduit to air their views on, on anti-Brexit. I mean, in an ideal world, you'd want – well, I'm putting words in your mouth – you'd want lots of money, lots of investors who are, are quiet and not involved. But my perception would be that people like Lionel Barber and Gavin O'Reilly would want a lot of input into how this paper is run. Not at all. Um, uh, I mean – I, I'm the boss. I'm the uh, majority shareholder by some margin. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the holding I have um, is more than the next six investors put together. So uh, I am the boss. Um, it's my baby. And that's why they've come to me. You know, I think they appreciate the job that I've done in the last four and a half years. And they believe in the way I want to take the paper. Now, can I spin it and say, if you've got Lionel Barber and Mark Thompson and Gavin O'Reilly uh, at your um, at your fingertips on the speed dial, you'd be an absolute mug not to phone them and, and, and listen to what they might have to say. And I certainly will phone them and listen to what they've got to say. But there's no um, sense that, that they're using this as a vehicle for anything other than wanting to see this new ballsy upstart of a, of a publication, which was only meant to last a month, go on and, and become something uh, that adds adds quality and adds breadth to the uh, debate in this country. So they were, just just for clarity, they won't be, they're unlikely, Lionel Barber and Mark Thompson and Gavin O'Reilly are unlikely to be writing for the paper. And also, along with, along with yourself, Alistair Campbell, who I kind of associate as being synonymous with the newspaper, he's not an investor, is he? Uh, Alistair isn't an investor, but Alistair is synonymous with the paper. And, you know, we've got a very close working relationship and Alistair carries on. Gav, Gavin, by the way, is is executive chairman. Uh, so he's very much involved in the day-to-day running of the business. But he, uh, he, I mean, you speak to Gavin, he'd laugh at the idea that he would get involved in, in, in the editorial tone. He knows exactly where that line is and that line is on my desk. Okay, but Lionel Barber and Mark Thompson might be writing for the paper. Can you just no? Well, Mark, I don't think Mark will write for the paper. I mean, may do. Uh, I'd love Lionel too. Lionel's one of the <laughs> Lionel's one of the most uh, brilliant journalists Britain's produced in the last generation. So if I can get him to write for us, I'd, I'd, I'll snap his hand off. And can you just can you give us a ballpark figure of how much you have read? I mean, is is it tens of thousands? Hundreds of thousands, or is it is it millions? Just what's at this stage, at this stage, it's it's hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's close to a million. Um, we are we've been inundated actually since the news broke last week with uh, people 
asking to get involved as investors as well. So we may take the opportunity to do a quick second round. Um, some very interesting uh, names uh, on mainland Europe wanting to get involved. And I am very keen on this idea of having a uh, an opportunity closer to the summer where members of the public and readers and subscribers can also own a piece of the paper as well. I'd, I'd love it to feel like it was a, a community-owned venture. You know? Who are these? Can you name some of these uh, mainland Europe? I, I can't at this stage, uh, John, I'm sorry. So the piece I read in the BBC said that the paper makes around 80,000 a year in profit. And with this investment, uh, this will double its editorial budget to around £13,000 per issue. Can you just give us some colour as to how that will be spent? Will it be spent on recruiting commercial people, more journalists, or how how, how will that be spent that money? Well, I mean, to, to take the first point, the paper does make a profit at the moment. But if you think about the new European and where it is in its life cycle as a media business, it shouldn't be making a profit, you know. And, and in some ways, this was the whole point about taking it and, and taking it away from uh, Archant and, and being able to have some resource that we could invest in the in the title. Uh, the figure the, the BBC quoted was, you know, the current editorial budget is the shoestring budget of £6,500 per issue. And, and what I'd said was we were going to increase that by 50%, not 100%. So you're looking at about nine or ten grand an issue and i want i want to spend that extra money on really good journalism you know uh, i want more fantastic uh, analysis on european issues that you won't read in the mainstream press here i would love to get a couple of marquee writers in uh, in in the fold as well um, and just and build on the quality of what i i think is already uh, a very high quality newspaper but of course you know you can get better and better and better and that's what i want to do um so I looked. I actually bought the paper yesterday. You don't do you don't do news, do you? Are, are you looking to no. uh, maybe you do do news on the website? Is that something you could uh, look to do, or will it remain um, opinion? You know, comment. Well, it's, I mean, it's not just opinion and comment. There's a lot of analysis in there, and there's a lot of interesting features as well. That you know, it's not just politics. Uh, we don't do news because people can get their news anywhere they want, and they can pick their own flavour of news. Uh, on any website they choose we do a little bit of uh you know current day-to-day topical response to stuff on the website but i'm much more interested in trying to create something that is unique and distinctive that gives people uh stuff they won't find anywhere else and is a quality uh read that people walk away from thinking well i knew a little bit more about the world uh than i did before i picked it up uh so in you know are we a newspaper the way we look the way we sell yes we are but we're a strange beast we're much more akin to a a political periodical in in terms of what's inside it okay and i also i mean i read your editorial at the front of the paper and this is a a verbatim quote when you talked about the uh the bio you said there is a growing market for a a progressive quality periodical to to bring a fresh perspective on the uk's changing relationship with europe which you kind of hinted at here and um, I think the circulation at the moment is around uh, 17,000 mark, which is a, a mix of uh, newsstand and subscriptions. I just yeah. wondered, is there not a danger that you're, you're cornering, cornering yourself into or pigeonholing yourself into a, a niche? And how, how will you kind of drastically grow that circulation? Because, I mean, the Brexit argu- argument to some people is, 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 is kind of that ship, that ship has sailed, hasn't it? Yeah, I think that ship has sailed and I think we've got to look forward now. Um, I think, you know, 
painting yourself into a niche uh, is, you could argue that that is the, the correct recipe right now. You know, I think people are thirsty for periodicals that really zoom in and, and, and focus on their particular interest and their values. Um, I think it's a big market. Our biggest problem always, you asked about how we're going to grow circulation. People who get the New European love the New European. We have remarkably low churn in, in our subscriber base, which has grown significantly during um, lockdown. Our retail, as you alluded to, has been hit during lockdown like everybody else's. Pre-lockdown, you know, you're selling about 20,000 copies. Now, people sneer and say, oh, it's less than the Beano. Well, one, the Beano is very successful. But two, you, the market for political periodicals is is measured in tens of thousands, not not hundreds of thousands. So we are on a journey and we need to advertise and market ourselves. And the biggest problem I always face is, is a lack of awareness, uh, people having not heard of the New European. So we will be getting the message out in, in appropriate channels, spending a bit of money. And when people do get into the New European, they, they really do genuinely stick to it, believe me. I've not heard the analogy about the Beano before. I'll use that one in future. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think well, the Beano. <laughs> Sorry. Well, why the Beano? Is that is there a, a well? No, it's 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 it, it, it's the uh, Twitterati um, where I these days try to spend as little time as possible. But you quite quite often see, there's one of about four insults about toilet paper, uh, the Beano, um, and uh, you know. Very, various other sort of uh, slurs that, that hardcore Brexiteers throw at the New European, not realising that the New European is much broader uh, than Brexit and has been for several years now. And, and I think that's part of our challenge is communicating the reality, which is that, you know, just as The Economist started life as a single issue newspaper protesting about the Corn Laws, uh, the new European may have started about Brexit. It still feels very passionately about Brexit, but we cover we cover much more besides. You know, we got views on uh, on current affairs right across the globe. But we like to focus on what is good in Europe and what is Europe doing that's interesting and constructive and can be a bridge to a closer relationship with what's what's happening in the UK at this very interesting time. Yeah, okay, that, that's great. I actually bought it yesterday at the, the same time as I bought the Sunday Times, and it's yeah. the, I, I compared it, I don't know if I should compare it, it's the same price, isn't it? I just thought, um, in terms of value for money with the Sunday Times, I get an array of supplements. I don't get an array of supplements with the New European. I can see how you can get a, a core readership who, who would buy it, but I'm just wondering how you can entice, uh, is, it, is it prohibitively expensive, that £3? No, no, I think it's too I think it's too cheap. Uh, by the way, I think the Sunday Times is too cheap. I think, you know, it's a time-worn comparison, but people spend three quid on a latte, and they think spending three quid on 48 pages of brilliant quality journalism is a stretch, then they need to reevaluate their their um, priorities. I think uh, newspapers in this country are gen genuinely too cheap. But to be honest with you, my view is that if you're passionate about something and you like something, um, the price point is not the the problem. The price point is is the least of your worries. And um, uh, I think um, people who feel a sense of uh, belonging and uh, membership to something, they'll pay whatever they feel is reasonable. And three quid is you know, I'm not saying it's cheap, but it's, I wouldn't say it was expensive as well for a, a thing you buy once a week. Okay, uh, that's fantastic. And just last couple of questions. I, I, when I flipped through the paper, I couldn't see 
uh, any or many advertisers. I think I saw an advert for Tortoise, which is a uh, another uh, news outlet. Um, I mean, can you talk a bit about the the advertising market? And secondly, uh, and lastly, just just twelve months down the road, where do you want to be in in, in terms of how you see the paper growing uh, over that sure, period? Sure. So advertising has been a chronic issue for us, and we started off with a traditional outlook that we should have advertising. Um, uh, it was very hard. I think people thought the transient nature of of Brexit as a as a topic, and also the fact that we started off by saying we were a pop up and we wouldn't be around very long. You know, so why would you take any interest if you're an advertising agency? Um, and they didn't. We have had ad, uh, adverts from people who feel very strongly, like Pimlico Plumbers. You know, they they're very anti Brexit and they've advertised and supported us, but. I'm hoping that um, with this investment and uh, uh, getting spreading the word about the breadth of um, our topics, but also the quality of our audience, um, that we'll start to get some advertising. I'm interested in classified advertising. I think that's a good vehicle for us. I'm also interested in in adverts from Europe. You know, trying to reach a, a UK audience. Um, I, I think it's very hard right now for a, a new publication to 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 make any kind of impact within traditional agencies so we're going to have to work a lot harder and try and talk to brands directly Um, but you know that said if there are any agencies out there who feel they want to support um, a a fresh new voice um, then they know where to find me I hope Uh, in terms of where are we in 12 months I would hope significant uh, growth in in subscribers um, and a sense of um, uh, possibility at that stage a sense of possibility for us in other markets uh further afield like like mainland europe you know i think um there's a there's a lot of interest in what's happening in the uk and all they see and all they perceive is that it's kind of anti-eu anti-europe anti uh very nationalistic and and perhaps um this is this is a, a, a wrong perception uh, from from wherever you look in the, the political spectrum. I don't think Brexiteers feel like that either. And I think we as a nation have got to stop conflating the European Union with Europe uh, and talk about how you know, given the reality of our circumstances, how can Britain progress constructively, become a better nation? But also, how can how can Europe uh, help us do that? And how can we help Europe do that? So I think there's a market for the new European on mainland Europe as well. Right. Okay, Matt, uh, that was uh, short and very eloquent. Thanks very much for uh, joining